Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 156 being recorded on Thursday, November 29th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, this is the third and final part of a three-part series around our holiday 18 quote-unquote halftime coverage In the first episode, we covered a lot of the news that came out of the holiday. Then uh, we had Tamara Gaffney from Adobe to share her view of how their data was shaping up. And we are excited to welcome, as the third part, Profiteros SVP of Strategy and Insights, Keith Anderson, to the show. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Jason. Great to be with you both. It is awesome to have you. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while, Keith. I'm an avid follower of all the content you put out on the internet. So I'm excited to have a live conversation about it tonight. Well, likewise, uh, whenever I mention that I, I have a podcast, people say, oh, like the Jason and Scott show? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've always enjoyed it. So good to be a guest. Uh, I, that's a fabulous compliment. So as you know from listening to the show, when we have a guest on, we always like to start by getting kind of a, a brief synopsis of um, uh, how you matriculated in your career and came to Profitero. So what what was your story? Uh, My whole career has been in retail and consumer goods consulting and industry analysis uh, and now product management uh, at Profitero. So started at Kantar Consulting, as it's now known. In in those days, it was uh, a company called MVI, and then uh, helped start another industry analysis company called Retail Net Group, which is now part of Edge by Essential. Uh, and and w- while I was there, my practice was really focused at the intersection of technology with retailers, brands, and consumers, uh, both in-store and, and out-of-store. Uh, and, and part of that work was helping some of the brands cope, uh, even in those days, this is seven or eight years ago with the proliferation of technologies and solutions and all of the inbound email that comes with the business development teams at those companies. Uh, and, and there was a lot of noise and folks saying, uh, which types of capabilities should we be exploring? Who's good? Uh, and so I, I had sort of built up a view of the landscape uh, and and had been doing work with some investors. And uh, as it turned out, the investors in Profitero uh, and one of the board members and the founders were, were folks that I had met before and really admired. And they asked me, hey, uh, we, we are thinking of trying something new. What do you think? And I don't think they were expecting five pages of notes, but I had a lot of ideas. Uh, and they said, well, that actually sounds like a pretty good plan. Do you want to do it? So uh, I've been here for about five years, and uh, in that time, we've built uh, a global performance analytics platform for brand manufacturers. So it, it's been a nice way to apply some of what I know about uh, the work and and apply it in a, a pretty different business than anything I had done previously. Nice. You you can quickly uh, avail me of a misperception if I have one, um, but I, I think of you guys as a, sort of one of the pioneers in a, a new category of analytics that I I tend to call digital shelf analytics. And is a, a is that like a good description? Do you uh, is that too narrow? No, I, I think it is. We uh, we, we sometimes say performance analytics because we integrate uh, at least for Amazon traffic conversion sales share data. Uh, but you're exactly right. One of our core data sets is correct. Collected directly from the digital shelf. It's public domain data on Amazon and any other retailer site or mobile app uh, that tells you how you're positioned in search, 
is your content complete and compelling? Do you have enough reviews? Did you get a negative rating yesterday uh, that needs a response? Are you available and in stock? Uh, and and ultimately, you know, what's the score and, and why are you winning or losing? Uh, so I, I think I, I wouldn't necessarily say we pioneered digital shelf uh, data. We, we've got great peers in the industries that were there first. What we may have done first uh, is connect some of the data points or data sets that allow you to look a little more holistically and, and we think make better decisions faster. And uh, that's why I said, you know, one of the pioneers. And so in my world, in, I'm super old. And so in the old days of traditional shopper marketing, we used to partner with brands that would spend a bunch of money on in-store displays. And we would actually pay school, uh, college kids to go visit stores and take pictures of shelves. And we would look at things like, what's our share of shelf? And how is our product showing up on the shelf? And all these sorts of things. And so I sort of think of that digital shelf as the the way better modern equivalent where you guys are are essentially sending bots to all the product detail pages um, for these major retailers and you're collecting all this super interesting um, structured data around uh, how how everyone is merchandising their their product on on uh, digital shopping experiences yeah there, there is definitely uh, uh, an alignment of some of those disciplines you know 4p and and shelf management disciplines uh, and and some shopper marketing concepts that definitely translate from brick and mortar to this domain. And, and some of the, the benefits of using technology are obvious. You can collect a lot more data more frequently, more accurately. Uh, and, and having been one of the people collecting data like that manually in the store uh, a lot more efficiently. So, so that is one of the benefits. I, th- I think now where we sort of see things trending uh you know ultimately those are audits and audits are great for telling you whether you're doing what you think you should be doing uh but given the the pace that e-commerce and and amazon continues to evolve at uh and and how dynamic it is a lot of the questions are about what should i do and how do i do it uh so one one key element of what tools like these I think can help you do as they keep evolving is uh, certainly see whether what you think should be there is there and, and things are being executed the right way, but it's, it's definitely moving deeper and deeper into optimization. I think. Along the lines of optimization, you, you referenced some performance analytics data beyond the, uh, the pure audit. Can you just talk like in a little more detail about like what kinds of data that is? Sure. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, what's important to to distinguish is some of the data sets that I'll describe now uh, we can do on Amazon, but we can only do them on Amazon. Uh, and, and there are a couple reasons. So we can uh, show a, a manufacturer daily glance views for their ASINs on Amazon. We can show them their conversion rate. We can tell them not only their volumetrics, that is daily unit volume and and uh, sales, but we can we can also estimate their competitors' daily unit volume and sales, and then ladder that up to a, a category view aligned with whatever hierarchy they may be accustomed to reporting in. Uh, there's two reasons we can do it at Amazon and only Amazon. Uh, one is Amazon's site structure uh, is is revealing. There are things like bestseller ranks and who's winning the buy box uh, that are observable in the public domain. Uh, and with with one of the other inputs to our modeling, uh, which is actual sales for a brand's own products, uh, where we don't have the specific data points we need, we can model them really accurately at, at a, an ASIN level every day. Uh, so the the natural question is w- when can you do that for any other retailer and and I think odds are slim that it'll work the way we do it at other retailers, but there are companies that op- operate panels of different kinds uh you know browser and and device monitoring and uh e receipt monitoring that that can also provide similar metrics for a a broader 
set of retailers too. I think the real value in, in what we do is at least in, in Amazon's ecosystem, having those data sets seamlessly integrated with workflows that are, that are oriented around uh, the, the tasks that you got to do. Uh, that's one of the ways that, that it comes to life in our world. Got it. So just so I make sure I'm, I'm tracking like, uh, Amazon, because it's so so rich, gives a bunch of signals about how products sell or perform relative to each other. So you notice all those signals, and then you know uh, I, as your client, tell you what my actual sales are for my product, and then you can use that as sort of the seed to then say, all right, well here's people that are performing uh, X amount better than you and X amount worse than you, and you can kind of interpolate. The, the whole category using my my data and all those signals that you notice is that do I that, that's a that's a pretty accurate explanation awesome well done wow Jason man how about that look at you <laughs> he's finally paying attention so let's it sounds like a great set of data let's let's jump let's go swimming in there um, let's start with holiday uh, at a macro level what are you guys seeing here at about half time of holiday 18. I'd say there are two things that I've noticed. Uh, we had actually just done sort of a three-month study of of prices uh, at around 20 U.S. online retailers. Uh, and generally what we see is that Amazon is is the cheapest across a broad set of categories, both hardline, softline, discretionary, uh, and, and consumable. Uh, w- with exceptions on some items in in every category and and occasionally entire categories where they get beat, uh, what it looks like over the period from November twenty first to twenty sixth, so basically just before Black Friday it, into uh, the day after Cyber Monday, uh, it looks like Amazon was really aggressive w- with similar price gaps to a lot of the the same retailers that that we compared in the last study, uh, but larger uh, in, in a few cases. So during the holiday, um, so, so a lot of people don't realize on Amazon, it's like a real-time stock market for products, right? Products are changing. And uh, over at Channel Advisor, we have a repricer, so we're, we're probably part of the problem here, or the, the solution, depending on how you look at it. Um, I'm sure you guys see this a lot, right? Does does that like go crazy during the holiday where it's usually like an eight out of 10 and during the holiday, you're just seeing these retailers react to each other at a more feverish pace or does it settle down during holiday? What, what do you see? What's kind of anything in the data that you can tell us about that? Uh, we, we see definitely more dynamic pricing, especially on the third party seller side. So uh, y- y- as you know, on, on the one P side, uh, as with any retailer, all pricing decisions are at the retailer's discretion. It is dynamic and algorithmic, but uh, the brands get no input. Uh, and and so Amazon, wh- while nobody really knows how their algorithm works across the board, uh, they have been, from what, we, what we've observed, uh, a little more selective about the items that they don't want to be beat on or that they really want to win on. Uh, I think that uh, we, we did a study of hourly pricing a few months ago, and I, I unfortunately don't have it pulled up, but I think we saw uh, orders of magnitude, more intraday price changes from the third-party seller side, and that's sort of what we see over holiday too. I, w- one of the things that we've seen at, at a lot of retailers uh, last year, but especially this year is, uh, what appeared to be somewhat constrained supply. So that's one of the other reasons you may not see uh, as aggressive price matching between retailers during the promotional period, because if they're not promoting the item, they probably don't have the supply. Uh, and so I, I think they they are getting to the point where they'll they'll consider matching on items that are key items for them or that they're promoting. But the rules engines are getting sophisticated enough uh, that there's less of the brute force price matching across the landscape. Mm-hmm. It um, it feels like uh, Amazon's everyone's being particularly aggressive on toys because this is the first holiday where we haven't had a, a Toys R Us. Um, and then the Adobe folks were talking about that, and Amazon called out apparel and toys in their press release. 
Um, can you, you know, so you, you talked about this kind of macro view of Amazon compared to other folks. Um, can you look into your data and say, oh my gosh, they're going crazy on toys or, or any other kind of categorical stuff there that was interesting? Yeah, in toys, uh, Walmart looks like they're being aggressive, although a little less aggressive than they were in the second quarter on price. And, and Jet actually looks like they went much less aggressive. Uh, but it, it certainly makes sense. There's definitely a vacuum that's been left. You, you know, we, we've seen some other supply chain related complexities in, in some of those categories over the same period. So I'm really looking forward to the, the final read on what the sell through was just to see how that compares to what we see in our pricing and promotion data. Because I, I, I think everybody wants to win those those shoppers looking for their Toys R Us substitute. Yeah, everyone I think wants to kind of plant their flag in toys this holiday, so they're they're being super aggressive on it. Yeah, we also saw a lot in, in Baby, which I think is sort of a similar idea, just not as seasonally aligned. Uh, but naturally, when, you, when when your family expands, especially for the first time, suddenly you're looking for new products that you've never bought and doing a lot of research and that makes you more receptive to new retailers. So I, I think some of what we, we saw in the baby category was, was potentially related to it too. Cool. So if we've, if we've kind of already covered toys, do you want to highlight the macro? I do. Electronics, I think was, was pretty competitive with Walmart and jet being most competitive followed by Best Buy. Uh, Best Buy was, was, 15% more expensive, Jet 7.4, Walmart 5.9. Uh, appliances, not quite as, as close to Amazon, uh, but Walmart closest, Home Depot second close, closest. Uh, and, and Tools and Home Improvement are another one where uh, one of the rare ones where a specialist in the category really led on price. And in that case, uh, well, not lead. Home Depot is a little more expensive than Amazon, but uh, Home Depot was less expensive than Walmart. So it, it's been interesting to us to watch, uh, as we've seen over the last decade with a lot of the brick and mortar category specialists and their online counterparts uh, failing to find a, a point of difference. Uh, you know, do do these players eventually capitulate and try to compete on price, or do they give up? I mean, I I, I haven't mentioned Staples, but they're commonly thirty five to fifty percent more expensive. Uh, so when I see Home Depot or somebody uh, pricing as close to parity with Amazon as it looks like they did over this period, it's sort of notable. Interesting. So one category that I'm particularly interested in, and I'm I'm curious if it uh, if you had much visibility in your in your data. Um, so I know uh, you guys are really strong in the CPG space, and obviously CPG is a, a category that I feel like is quickly getting disrupted by digital. Like there's not huge adoption to sales yet, but it's it's rapidly evolving. And particularly on food, I feel like coming into this holiday period, a lot of the retailers had really muscled up their their digital food capabilities. So you had Walmart with 2,000 stores, you had Target with the whole shipped infrastructure, you had... Uh, uh, Whole Foods doing uh, digital orders and direct home, and you know, of course, you had uh, you know Instacart continuing to to have a strong presence. So, in my mind, this this Thanksgiving was really the the first holiday that people had uh, very likely had an option to do their their Thanksgiving meal shopping as curbside pickup or home delivery. And I'm I'm curious if if uh, it it looked from the data like like uh, there was traction in that category. Uh, I don't know that our data will reveal, if we're talking about fresh and perishable groceries, our data won't reveal it from a sales perspective. Uh, I, I think you're exactly right. It's clearly been an inflection point this year with with massive expansion. I mean, the, the last two years, but this year especially, massive expansion of availability of click and collect and delivery models, uh, especially in some of the the tier two, tier three, uh, you know, less, less urban parts of the country that uh, prior to models like Instacart really scaling uh, meant that 
you, you know, a- any previous Thanksgiving for the last 20 years, you could have ordered online groceries if you lived in Chicago, New York, Boston, and, and a, hand, a handful of other big metros. But what, what I think is really notable is almost anywhere you can buy groceries, you can buy them online now. The, the growth trajectory that you'll see, though, for online grocery is pretty different, at least local online grocery is pretty different than, uh, than for typical e-commerce. There are a lot of uh, surmountable but, but important uh, hurdles to triggering or prompting that first order. Uh, and so I, I did see retailers like Amazon and Walmart doing some interesting promotional stuff, uh, sometimes with their suppliers in a co-marketing uh, campaign, trying to trigger that, that order with either a waived delivery fee or, uh, you, you know, discounts if you, if you uh, buy in bulk. So a few different ideas, but my suspicion is it's going to take a, a few years of extended exposure to persuade you know, more than a quarter of the the target shopper base in any of those areas to try it. Once they do try it, if it's a if it's a good experience, then they start shifting some of their stock up trips and some of their their uh, routine grocery consumption to that model. And that's where things get sticky. Uh, I I do think you know things like Instacart lowering their annual membership fee to put it. Uh, now actually a little below prime uh, and definitely below prime, including prime fresh uh, where, where before they were more expensive, you know, there's definitely that eagerness to uh, drive, drive trial. And then through those membership models, which not all the online grocers have try and, and lock a household in. Yeah. It, uh, one of the things that's been fun for me about grocery is uh, that it's both familiar and feels a lot like, traditional e-commerce and then it's it's very different and foreign in many ways and and one of those big ways people don't talk about it all that much but for most categories of e-commerce uh what's super important is to capture that second order from a customer right like so it's actually not that hard to get a customer to make a one-time purchase but until you get a second order from that customer you really haven't formed a, a habit and it's you can spend a bunch of money to acquire the customer sell them something once and not be very successful. So you have to work really hard to get that second order. And grocery is potentially the one category where that flips. It's so list-based that it's super important that you be the first brand that gets in that list because like, it's very likely that if that habit sticks with that shopper, they're going to continue to reorder off that list and sort of manicure that list rather than like make new product decisions every single time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and I was thinking even from the retailer's point of view, uh, y- y- you know, part of that uh, complexity is the larger order size. They're, they're, in the average Amazon.com order, there's between one and two items. Uh, but uh, a typical grocery and, and online grocery orders are even larger. We'll have 25 or 30 items, 120 or $150. And that, that takes some planning and, and a little deliberation to build that basket. Uh, and, and as a result, there's a lot of abandonment of, of the online carts when, you know, you, you add three or four of your items and then say, you know what, I know exactly where those items are at the, the stop and shop three quarters of a mile down the road. I can get down there and get in and out and just have this stuff in the kitchen in an hour. So, you, you know, there's, and then all the concerns about, produce freshness and I want to pick my meat and, and all those things. And, and a lot of those things are surmountable, but yeah, once you get the shopper to try online grocery from the brand's point of view, you're exactly right. Uh, you, you know, search still matters, but it, it matters less uh, in, in the online local full basket models uh, than, than on amazon.com. And that favorites list is a big part of it. And there, there have been some clever things folks have done, like letting you link an in-store loyalty card to your online account so that they can pre-populate uh, your, your first online order 
based on what what you typically buy in their stores. So Peapod for years has had a, a feature called Guess My Order like that. And, and I think that's clever. And we're actually starting to see uh, at least A-B testing or, or piloting, if not full-scale uh, rollout of sponsored products in shopping lists and registries and some of those things. Uh, you know, just this week, we were noting that some of the baby registries on Amazon are are displaying in line sponsored products alongside what the the new parents are actually asking for. So it's it's getting very interesting because there's all this this clarity that you do need to be on the list, uh, but getting on the list is much less straightforward than how you drive traffic to a product page or a lot of the things that, that other brands have spent the last decade or two optimizing for in a, in a spear phishing amazon.com style model. Yeah. And uh, you, you did highlight, uh, uh, I think one that, that's getting a lot of, of uh, coverage this week. I, I want to say wall street journal may have ran an article exposing some of the, um, the Amazon sponsored listings in, in baby registry. And I have to say that feels and looks to me like particularly oily. <laughs> like, like literally what's happening is, is uh, shoppers build a, a registry list. They send it to all their friends and Procter and Gamble has the option of spending a half million dollars to have, to add their own products to your list with, you know, very subtle sponsored branding and it, it it literally says on it, you know, zero of one purchase, just like any other item on that gift registry. And so your friends are buying the stuff off the Procter & Gamble ad because they think you've requested it. And, it, you know, Amazon to me is a very shopper friendly company that like, you know, claims they always really focus on the user. And this is to me one of the most overt cases where like they clearly are not focusing on the user in, the, in that execution. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say what's going to stick. So Amazon is like, you know, doing in multivariant testing constantly. So we'll have to see if something like that sticks. I, I think if it feels oily, Amazon has typically done a pretty good job of pulling back on it, but we'll see. Yeah, I, we, we obviously see a lot of the, not, not, you know, test by test what's what's being tested, but we're like like channel advisor would be, we're on their site all day. Uh, and, and the testing has really escalated this year. And a lot of it has been around sponsored products. Yeah. You, every week you see an article about uh, not only the growth, but the importance of that revenue to their, to their profit model. Uh, so I, I think they are really just testing the boundaries and not only seeing what works, but listening for the reaction and seeing how it uh, ruffles feathers or doesn't around the ecosystem. Cool. So that was a good summary of what you're seeing in holiday. Let's, let's kind of pull back up to 30,000 foot level. Um, one of the things we've been wanting to get you on the show to talk about is just the more general pricing uh, report that you guys put out there. Um, give us a, a, an overview of what you're seeing in kind of more of a macro sense and, and any interesting highlights you want to call out. We'd, we'd love to hear. Sure. Uh, I, I think by this point, it, it's it's evident that m- most retailers have some competitive intelligence and repricing capability, and the the margin compression uh, that that has resulted in when it's not wisely deployed, I think, has become a, a big topic. Uh, so, I mean, the tactics I think are really important, but we we just did a big survey with Cantor consulting uh, of 200 brands globally and in the number one challenge that they cited uh, above all the other challenges was pricing and profitability. Uh, and, and uh, I, I think one of you mentioned uh, you had seen the, the recode story about the big shift uh, that, that seems to be underway between how Amazon had been essentially tolerating this emerging 1P3P hybrid strategy that some suppliers have been operating or exploring. Uh, what, what, what Amazon basically did was uh, crack down and say, if you're doing business with us directly as a vendor, we want you to be a first party vendor. And even if you've identified an authorized reseller, 
who's trying to enforce that authorization uh, against unauthorized resellers. Uh, we we need you to consolidate on the one piece side. And and you know when you hear some of the commentary in that Recode article from uh, folks around the industry, it's it's pretty alarmist, or at least it sounds very alarmed. Uh, but I I think in a sense it's a fair characterization. Uh, you, you know, this is not a particularly new problem, but as the growth has compounded, especially in these low margin, high, high velocity consumables categories, uh, they're quickly awakening to the the supply chain and, and unit economic realities and, and realizing, boy, we have to uh, contain costs and we have to raise ASPs. And so where that leads us is we we definitely see a handful of retailers competing aggressively on everyday shelf pricing on the items that everybody carries in common. But there's also been a big escalation of what I think of as more strategic investments in in either value or non-price points of difference. And and an example would be something like jet smart card, uh, which I'm not suggesting is widely adopted or, or loved by shoppers, but it, it is a way to make the economic trade-offs that impact the retailer explicit to the shopper so that they can align interests and say, Hey, if you'll waive the privilege of, of returning the product that saves us. So we'll pass some savings on, uh, but m- much more investment in, private label and exclusive brands, very aggressive push by Amazon over the last few months. Uh, it, and what in some categories might be a bit of a pivot from uh, their their previous private label strategy to more of an exclusive strategy, uh, a lot more uh, tie-ups with some of the direct-to-consumer insurgent brands. I think Target has been partnering with a lot of those brands that that built a little awareness through a direct consumer model, but then hit a ceiling and needed a partner to scale. So yeah, I, I don't know if that's exactly what you had in mind on the pricing thing, but what I'm, what I'm heartened to see is the the retailers are starting to think of ways to transcend brute force matching hourly on every item, regardless of, of other impacts. Because I, I think we can all see that's not going to be sustainable for five years. Yeah, no, it certainly is a race to the bottom. Maybe a close cousin or related to like, you know, all the the dynamic pricing and, and controversies. Um, there is just sort of general product visibility, right? Like, so a, a super common narrative I'll have is uh, every, every three-piece seller thinks they're being disadvantaged in visibility versus stuff that Amazon's selling directly. So they, they think Amazon's somehow cheating and making 1P product more visible than their 3P version. Um, and like increasingly, as Amazon has more and more of their own products, all the, all the you know, national brands feel like they're, they're somehow disadvantaged in visibility versus Amazon's owned products. And the, the newest iteration of this I've heard is a lot of... Um, or several of my clients that are from very large brands, like have have asked if I believe that Amazon is disadvantaging large brands versus smaller digitally native brands because their perception is um, that that you know sort of uh, small challenger brands are emerging and and doing really well with visibility on Amazon, and their their perception is that it must not be a completely level playing field, like. Um, and my overall reaction to all that is that it's Amazon has a pretty fair system and they just know the system best. So they they're able to take most advantage and there's not anything nefarious going on there. Like, or, I mean, do you, do you guys have a about that? I, I definitely have a few thoughts. I, I think Amazon with their own labels, uh, we've seen a couple AB tests that they seem to be running only for their brands, not for others. So that you you might argue uh, could be uh, putting a thumb on the scale. But I, I generally agree. I think it's a pretty fair system overall. And I don't think that 
big brands are necessarily disadvantaged. I, I think uh, they just don't have some of the scale-based advantages on Amazon's platform that they're accustomed to in brick and mortar, where it's a lot more relationship-based and things like category management uh, are really relevant, whereas they are relevant, uh, but less so at the endless aisle. I, I do think, though, you know, when you look at some of the inherited lim- inherently limited selection platforms like Prime Now uh, and Fresh and Pantry, those are certainly biased towards mainstream national best-selling items. So in some of those areas, they have the benefit. And I think as the uh, as the sponsored product and, and Amazon advertising uh, options continue to expand and, and grow in importance, uh, again, he who can pay is going to play. So I, I think there are signs that, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a level playing field in the broadest sense, but there are pockets where brands of any scale can, can gain advantage. Cool. So you've, you've talked a little bit about sponsored products. What kind of things can you guys see there? Can you, can you see, um, uh, like lift that brands are getting from doing this or, or anything like that in, in the interesting a, you know, AMS, AMG kind of data that you guys collect? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think w- we see things like uh, who, who's sponsoring which keywords, uh, w- which is, is always interesting because Amazon is a, a lot more wild west than, than Google is at this point. Uh, and, and some of the targeting you can do just week by week seems to get uh, more interesting. Uh, you can target competitive products, brands. There's a lot that's interesting. But we, we see, it, at least where it's our client's product, uh, you know, traffic conversion. And, and that gets really helpful when you're trying to, to optimize campaign spend because uh, some of the, the internal reporting doesn't tell you things like you can pay to drive a lot of traffic to this page, but nobody buys that product. It doesn't convert. Uh, so I, I think some of the brands are, are just trying to ramp up as quickly as they can, understanding how the platform works, what are all the metrics, you know, it is an interesting time because in that area in particular, as we've been repeating, it, it's becoming so important. Uh, in most companies we've encountered, it was managed historically uh, by by the Amazon team, uh, where it, it can be argued it should naturally live because it's a lever that drives growth, but it's not the only lever that drives growth on Amazon. But because the work is so similar to... SEM in traditional search engines, a lot of the marketing teams are really starting to get interested. Uh, and, and I think it's just going to be interesting to see how, how the work ultimately gets managed and, and whether this ends up being more of a lever uh, among many in the context of growing on Amazon or as Amazon's uh, media network transcends Amazon properties and, and more and more resembles a Google network. Uh, it, it's just going to be so interesting who ultimately does the work. Are you going to merge sales and marketing? Yeah. I, I think we can, uh, you and I can both agree. You wouldn't want like one of these ad agencies to do it or, you know, like this, like a sapient razor fish or anyone like that. No, I, it, it should definitely be the analytics companies. I feel like the on-demand car wash company should really be doing it. Absolutely. I was wondering how we were going to work that in. I, I will say something, Jason, that may you may find heartening. Uh, when we asked these 200 brands, what are you spending on and what are you going to spend on? Uh, you know, Thankfully, e-commerce, data analytics, and insights was number one. But search agencies and product content agencies were number two and three. So... Uh, the outlook seems somewhat rosy. Yeah, well, I, don't, I mean, I feel like there's headwinds and tailwinds. And, and I'll ask you a question that like potentially highlights one of the, the tailwinds or headwinds rather. 
at the moment, it does feel like most brands outsource all this work. Like they outsource a lot of the content development work for optimizing the digital shelf. And they optimize a lot of the, the Amazon media work for, you know, sponsoring visibility on the site. But what I run into a ton is usually they're outsourcing both of those pieces of work to two different entities. Yeah. To your point, it may be their traditional paid search agency that they're having do the Amazon uh, marketing stuff, or or they may find a specialty firm that does that, and they have someone else focusing on on uh, SKU optimization. In the long run, it won't surprise me if a lot of that work comes in house because a it's it's core to their brand building, and b you know I think Amazon has a vested interest in building a tool set that's easy enough for the the clients to use directly. Um, but at the moment where they're outsourcing it, I feel like it's a tragic mistake to to divide those pieces of work because in my mind it's so critical to have synergies between like you both need glances on the products and then you need conversion on the products. Right. And so like don't spend a bunch of money on visibility for SKUs that, that you haven't optimized and aren't going to be able to convert and vice versa. Don't spend a bunch of money optimizing SKUs that no one's ever going to see. Yeah. No, I like you, I'm a big fan of not covering one eye when you don't need to, uh, and and a lot of how we've structured our analytics is trying to give you the complete picture. So I think if if you're so specialized that you're you're doing great work in a narrow domain that has implications for the rest of the flywheel, uh, you're never going to out execute, and you might end up causing a lot of problems. And and we do see that scenario sometimes where the left hand isn't talking to the right and and you have wildly different uh, creative below the fold uh, that contrasts with clearly heavily SEO uh, optimized above the fold content. And you just look at this page and you're like, what is going on? Did, was there nobody that had final sign off and looked at this and said, uh, this is not coherent. Cool. So you're, you guys have this, uh, you have survey data and, and then like the pricing data, maybe just kind of top of mind. What are some things brands are doing right and wrong that you see? Obviously don't call out any brands doing stuff wrong. Um, and then any other, you know, uh, maybe there is a certain brand that you see that is kind of like the case study for, for how you knock down all the best practices. Um, any, anything like that you can share with listeners? Yeah, what, one thing that we noticed in some some other research we did was there's been an uptick in the the especially at the high end of the consumer products industry that that is the largest companies uh, doing things like corporate venture capital and either technology or brand accelerators uh, and, and going back to the sort of unfair advantage discussion we were having uh, as it relates to big brands and small brands. I I think you know that gets interesting because th- there are some disadvantages that a big brand has not because of any decision Amazon is making but inherent to that retail model. Uh, in other words, in a drugstore there's 4 feet of shelf space and very limited choice. I mean a lot more choice than one might need but uh you know limited choice. So you can manage your 4 Ps and really get unfair advantage. Uh, but at the endless aisle, when every shopper searches differently, th- there's no question the demand curve is not going to be as concentrated at the head. Uh, and and that, that, I think, has dawned on a lot of the big brands who have seen the share shift to insurgent or emerging brands and are realizing uh, we, we need to think differently about building brands and and launching brands and i see him moving with more agility so you know an an example is uh setting up uh essentially a a standalone business unit that has the autonomy to go and and decide uh all facets of of what they want to do uh we we see about 16 percent of brands doing that that's one thing that i think is is interesting i i think the biggest thing that they're missing although some of the the both smart ones and the ones that that have been directly impacted are getting really serious about supply chain and unity economics uh and, and that means 
you know, deeply involving uh, e-commerce in the R&D process and new product development process so that you're thinking of product form and packaging and pack configuration. Uh, and some are even sort of jointly funding uh, re- research and automation, both warehouse and, and last mile automation. Uh, both of those are areas that are just seeing tons of capital inflow right now. And and I don't think there's, at least outside of the warehouse, there's no clear model that is uh, dominant. But but I think, you know, not not paying attention to the unit economics is the biggest pitfall I can see. Yeah, uh, it's it's not hard to imagine why that's not a good practice. <laughs> Keith, we're running up on uh, time. I want to get one more question uh, in before we we do uh, wrap up, though. Um, maybe kind of taking our head out of some of the the minutia and the tactics, like big picture. How do you see all of this um, kind of playing out over the next? I don't know. You know, three to five years. Are are we still do you do you still see a market that has a, a similar number of competitors with a similar with a similar market share that we see today, or do you think there it's going to feel a lot different? I I think you know I I interviewed Liza Landsman when she was a, I think chief customer officer at Jet, and this was about a year after they launched, and she said uh, everybody thinks that e-commerce is going to be a winner takes all market, just like most technology markets. We think it's not. We think it's going to be a binary market with two dominant choices and we're going to be one of those two choices. Uh, and and it's starting to look like that. You know, I think from a marketplace perspective, it is winner takes all in, in the broadest sense. Most countries or regions seem to have one dominant marketplace and a lot of niche marketplaces. Uh, but I, I think it's plausible that you'll see Amazon and Walmart uh, with dominant share in the U.S. I think you'll, you'll see Alibaba and JD uh, in China and, and scenarios like that. I, I do think because of the capital intensity of, of uh, owning and operating the infrastructure there are advantages that that scale brings to an Amazon or a Walmart that as time goes on, it just gets harder and harder to to catch up without renting some of that infrastructure from them. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I feel like we're clearly moving towards a lot of duopolies. Uh, the smart aleck in me has to wonder, uh, was that Liza interview before or after the jet acquisition? Because I sort of agree with her we're we're probably you know part of a duopoly after the Walmart acquisition, but I'm I'm not sure Jet was well positioned to be part, one of that part of that duopoly before the acquisition. If I recall, it was before, but I interpreted her to be sort of projecting into the distant future that Jet, either independently or perhaps as part of a larger entity like Walmart, uh, they they thought they had a playbook that would. I think fill in the space at the opening price point and really price oriented uh, value equation that that Amazon had frankly seeded a little bit with a lot of its bundling, uh, you, you know, baked into the idea of we want Prime membership to be so valuable it's irresponsible not to be a member. Is we're just going to keep doing some stuff for you that you you may not know about, care about, value. And I, th- I think Mark Lohr saw, oh, well, you know, we can just go back in at the low end uh, and and we can beat them on price if we get creative. So I, I think there's there's value there. I, I am always watching with the hard discounters like Aldi and Lidl who are, are quietly doing a bit online. Uh, the, those folks are always interesting, at least in the grocery and CPG context. And, and there's more and more chatter about Alibaba coming to the U.S. Uh, in, in a much different way than they have so far. Uh, and what that looks like, I think it's just going to be interesting. But it, it's it's hard when a market is at this stage to enter uh, from afar and make an impact. 
I, I, I don't know. We really haven't seen it online outside of Amazon uh, and, and some of their international expansion. Uh, but we definitely saw it in brick and mortar. And, and I think there's been a lot of retrenchment, retrenching over the last uh, 10 years following the 90s. So it, it'll be an interesting five years. Yeah, no, for sure. I, uh, to me, that is uh, one of the fun parts about being in the industry right now is uh, it does not feel like the playbook is uh, uh, written or, or certainly not set in stone. No, I mean, ju- just think of all the new, I, I know you said we have to wrap up and I, I promise we're almost done, but think of all of the new devices and user interfaces that are actually starting to materialize. I mean, voice is the big breakout and it's not really there for e-commerce, but I, I think as it continues to improve and people get more experience with it, it's going to open all kinds of environments and contexts to commerce and a lot of other things. Uh, as may augmented reality, if it reaches uh, mainstream adoption. Uh, so I, I think when you look back at at how uh, markets get rearchitected, especially in technology markets, whenever there's a platform shift like that, it tends to crown new winners. So if, if voice continues to expand and, and becomes an even bigger deal, uh, whoever owns voice is going to be interesting. And I think there's going to be a lot of surprising new hardware coming over the next 18 months. That's going to keep us all fascinated and busy. Amazon said they have 10,000 people working on the uh, Alexa team. <laughs> I, I saw that there's a robot rumored to be launching and I, I have a new love of robots. So uh, that's one of the things I'm looking forward to. Jason will be all over that. Yeah, it's a double win. Like not only could those things drive more commerce, but just acquiring those things will drive more commerce. Exactly right. It's another flywheel. And that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, If you are itching uh, to make a comment or ask a question, feel free to continue the conversation on our Facebook page and we'll um, be monitoring that. As always, if you enjoyed the show, the the number one on the Christmas list for Scott and I this year is for you to jump on the iTunes and give us that five-star review. Keith, thanks for joining us. I know you're super busy. We really appreciate it. Where can folks find you online? They can reach me at Keith at Profitero.com uh, or just find me on LinkedIn. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Jason. Uh, big fan and, and really grateful for the invitation. Uh, it was entirely our pleasure, Keith. Thanks very much for the time. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.